This is Geek Gab with your host, me, Daddy Warpig, and Dornall. We are back. Geek Gab for Saturday, July 27th, 2019. And uh, today we are talking about D&D's cosmology, specifically AD&D. But before, before, before we get to that fabulous and exciting subject, uh, I, I got a question for you, Doranal. Hey, what's what up? What is what is the most ported game in history? And His, it's not Skyrim. It's not Skyrim. No, uh, the most ported game. I'm gonna I'm gonna go with probably Pong or some variation of Pong. Am I close? I, I I'm gonna say no. I mean that's a good guess. That's a good guess, but I'm gonna say no. I think the most ported game in history is the original Doom. Doom, for sure. It runs on anything. You could run it on an Etch-A-Sketch. <laughs> I mean, they've got Doom running on embedded systems. They've got Doom running on printers. Oh, have you seen the... Uh, someone did Quake on an oscilloscope. Oh, yeah, I did see that. That was awesome. <laughs> All right, so... Hobbyists. This is going to be the John Carmack love hour. Holy cow. Hobbyists have gotten Doom running correctly without problems on just about everything under the sun. They have a Doom port for Elon Musk's electric Tesla 3. Okay, when you're in your driveway in park on their little GPS screen, you can turn on Doom and use the wheel. <laughs> That's amazing. You can't I be serious. I'm not making this up. I swear this is true. Doom can run on anything without any problems. Hobbyists created, ported it to everywhere. Someone on Twitter said he thinks he's got a pair of socks that Doom runs on. So, like this week, Bethesda... Who, who now owns id Software, who created Doom, they released an official port. These are the people who are paid money to port Doom. An official port of Doom 64 for the Switch. Hmm. Bethesda, you say. <laughs> So, apparently, that claim that Doom runs on anything now has to have an asterisk by it. Doom runs on anything, asterisk, 
except the switch. Asterix, if it's an official port. <laughs> That's absurd. That is absolutely absurd. The music is messed up. It'll play for a little bit, and then there's like a blank, and then it starts playing again. And every few seconds, and I've got a picture of this. I got a picture of this because I want to read it to the audience. <laughs> every few seconds, this dialogue box pops up. A Bethesda.net account is required to play this title. Please connect to the internet. To <laughs> <laughs> wow. Because there's nothing that screams single-player game. Like having to be always online. That's nuts. That's uh, how that's embarrassing, is what it is. They messed up Dune. Dune. Yeah, they, they should really, really be uh, ashamed of themselves. So, anyways, now that we're, uh, I just took my funny bone. That's the funniest thing I'm going to see today. I'm really, really sure. Yeah, I just I just got a clip on on YouTube. Some some poor guys trying to play the first level, and and that a uh, little error box pops up every like five seconds. How do you mess up Doom? Uh, you, well, yeah, I don't know. Did they forget that that Doom is from that age of single player games where you don't need to be always connected, and the whole thing works out of the box. I mean, Doom is tiny. The the code, all the wads plus the executable, is tiny. You don't need very much space, and you don't need an, an internet connection. That's the point of Doom. Man, oh, yeah. I, I don't even want to talk about it anymore. It just, why don't we introduce our guests so I can yeah. just like... <laughs> well, we, well, we got... We got uh, Jeffro Johnson uh, of Appendix N fame, uh, hero to old school game masters everywhere. Uh, welcome back to the show. Greetings, programs. All right, and uh, and we're hanging out with uh, uh, Alexander, also known as Kursova. Kursova, you were just here like a week or two ago. We love having hey, you yeah. on the show, man. Welcome back. I love being here. And and you guys, we we're talking about D and D cosmology, which is I think, I think this is the nerdiest way to talk about D and D. I love this stuff, but uh, but there's something new in in D and D cosmology these days, which I thought was has been pretty cut and dried since the eighties. This is what I wanted to say huh? um, up front. It astonished me. Because we were talking about the subject online on Twitter. I heard some things about this. And so I posted a tweet asking about it. And I got fully, like, four responses. Fully four people responded to my tweet. And so I set up the show and asked some people on so I could actually get some more 
voluminous responses. What, what shocked the hell out of me that I thought why I wanted to dive into this deeper is, and I'm going to say this in kind of a, a deliberately provocative fashion. It is now apparent to me that the people who made second edition AD&D did not actually understand first edition AD&D. Does anybody actually understand first edition AD&D? I mean, Other honestly, than Gygax, probably no. Okay. All right. But, I, I, are you wrong? I mean, I don't know. You've got a whole hashtag dedicated to, to being right. I don't understand. Jeffro, am I wrong? Well, I, you know, I, my knowledge of uh, RPGs drops off very quickly after 1990. So I can't speak to what happened with AD&D 2. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, just to provide a little context for this discussion, like what AD&D actually is, uh, I think I think Ron Edwards has gone into this in some really good detail in some of his posts on the topic. So I'm just going to try to capture just a little bit of, of, of how that happened so we can move on. Uh, but, you know, OD&D uh, kind of came out. It was lightning in a bottle. And uh, you know, as we know from uh, what I covered in Appendix N, you know, and this is how you know, John C. Wright described it. The, you know, the game was uh, a play anything game. Anything from any fantasy story or even a science fiction story that people liked got glommed together in this awesome kitchen sink of a mess. And then from there, uh, the rules started gaining all these accretions. Uh, we, Complex Games Apologist raised this question a few weeks ago. Uh, he was very upset that nobody had ever built a clone off of AD&D. Why is it that the OSR has all this love for BX and for, for Holmes and for, the, for OD&D even? Why are they building off of that rather than AD&D? Well, there's a, there's a lot. <laughs> there's a lot to that. Do you guys want to weigh in on that? Uh, actually, I have something interesting that I'm going to go grab and be right back. Okay. So let me explain why I said what I did. Um, if you go back to AD&D First Edition, and I was passed a link to an article by Rick Stump uh, on his uh, Don't Split the Party blog, I believe. Um it, and I found out shortly thereafter that apparently we follow each other on MeWe, which I just, it, it kind of shocked me because I didn't know that. Uh, and it kind of shocked me that I didn't know that I didn't know that. Um, talking about psionics and the effects on play in AD&D, which I hope we'll get to uh, in this show. All of the monsters are listed with psychic or psionic attack and defense modes. And there are several monsters that have, uh, that are entirely psionic centric. And the psionic rules, the appendix, uh, are available if the DM chooses to use them, but they are, they form an organic part of the rules if you do choose to use them. 
Whereas in uh, second edition, they're completely separate. They're completely taken out. And so they're not an integral part of the game. Yeah. Um, and, and something to back that up, right? Uh, you know, AD&D was like for a long time, the only role-playing game, you know, for a lot of people. Uh, you know, D&D was so gigantic and so influential. Everybody was taking it and then playing slightly hacked versions of it to do whatever they want rather than say inventing a whole new role-playing game because that was very very a new idea in the 70s but uh this idea like you see later in the mid 80s uh where this there, there's this move to, to to make things less kitchen sinky so the uh the monk is going to be pulled out into oriental adventures it's no longer you're no longer going to have a kung fu monk in your ad and d default campaign after that and then further you know, taking out those science fantasy elements as well. Uh, the, the the science fantasy uh, through the 70s was hard coded into the DNA of the base game. And yes, as, as Dirty Warpick points out here, you, you see that most uh, clearly in the uh, integration of psionics into literally everything. And there's no, it, it is, it's sort of pitched as an optional rule, but like, man, the, the people who made that, they didn't think that way. Uh, they they took it for granted that you would mash all this stuff together. Um, oh, and uh, a movie that, that demonstrates just that style of thinking. Uh, Ralph Bakshi's Wizards. Oh, uh, yeah. If you want to get turn, tuned into the mindset that was dominant in fantasy and science fiction when AD&D was being formed, I would, I would point you to that. Also, other movies like I, I think the the Dark Crystal actually hews pretty closely to that. Uh, Fire and Ice, of course, but uh, what's the other? Oh, I love Cole. Man, Cole is very much science fantasy, and like it, it you know that that genre just seems to disappear uh, at some point. I don't know why. I don't know why. Because the movies were expensive and got panned. Oh, I mean, I mean. Curl deserved a little bit of that. Come on, guys. That was that was that was good schlock there. It did have one of the first really good video game adaptations, though. Oh, I don't recall that. Yeah, the uh, the the crawl Atari game, where it's it starts out you fight off the guys who are, who are trying to bust up the wedding, chase them across the plains. You go to the spider's watchtower. Uh, you. You get the chakra thing. It's it, it was it was a pretty good and faithful adaptation as far as Atari video games go. I love it. I love it. I I want to uh, speaking after 1990 just to add to Jeffro's uh, experience there. Yeah, that was my experience with future versions of of the game as they broke apart all the, the weird mashup elements, and you can find them here and there. But the, the science fiction stuff really dropped off, and I, I'm not alone in not liking any of that stuff in my game. I hate the monk as a class. I hate the idea of yeah. you know, investigating an alien spaceship and finding la laser beams and stuff in my in my D&D &D game. I, I really like to stick close to that. Uh, fantasy thing, and uh, and they catered to that in the rules. Listen, this yeah. is this, you know, AD and D first edition is for the chosen few only. It is for elite gamers. It's just not for everyone. And, and that's <laughs> okay. 
But uh, I, anyway, I, I found what I was looking for. Recently, my dad gave me a copy of the complete book of war games by the editors of Consumer Guide with John Freeman in a handsome hardbound copy from 1980. And this is what it has to say in the comments about Dungeons and Dragons. What can be said about a phenomenon? Aside from Tactics 2 and possibly Panzer Blitz, the first modern tactical war game, this is the most significant war game since H.G. Wells. On the other hand, beginning characters are without exception dull, virtually powerless, and so fragile they would fare poorly against crippled mosquitoes, none of which exactly encourages newcomers. To compensate for the inherent flaw in the stupid magic system, many of the spells are redundant, and the effects of the, ma the majority are vaguely hopeless. Armor affects the likelihood of being hit rather than net damage sustained, a typically anti-realistic absurdity. None of the numbers, such as those required to hit another character, relate logically to any others, such as defending man's armor class, armor class numbers running backwards, but not always. Those of magic armor go backwards and forwards. The essential elements, saving throws, hit points, experience points, and so on, are undefined and poorly explained. The ratio of substance to holes compares unfavorably favorably with the head of a tennis racket. Presented in the most illiterate display of poor grammar, misspellings, and typographical errors in all of professional wargaming, the rules make Fall of Rome's look cogent. Some errors like percentage liar for the cryptic or the equally cryptical percentage lair have spawned the most bizarre misinterpretations. This and the generally poor system have caused actual campaigns to diverge wildly from what is specified or suggested in the rules. Generally, this is for the better. As it was given birth, it is fascinating but misshapen. In its best incarnations, it's perhaps the most exciting and attractive specimen alive. <laughs> That's amazing. This That's is what awesome. contemporary wargaming critics were talking about Dungeons and Dragons in 1980 in, in fancy, expensive, hardbound cyclopedias of wargaming. Oh yeah, they're, they're so mad that, that the rules are ill-defined and, and none, nothing makes sense well, or is explained in a, in a simulationist. The, the role-playing well, market what? dwarfed wargaming. It absolutely... Yeah. It's like what magic cards were to us. Yeah. <laughs> well, one thing I, I will give them for, the, the rules of OD&D are just, oh my god, some of the worst written stuff in the world. And I kind of agree with what they say about, about Holmes, how, uh, let, let's see exactly what they say. Uh, that's such a great, that's such a great description. I, I, I'm glad that you read it to us because if I read that text I would have read it in the Simpsons comic store guy voice yeah. <laughs> here's what it has to say about Holmes it was written by someone outside the TSR establishment who knew a noun from a verb in the different shows <laughs> um, it's still a long jump short of perfection but you can read this and generally understand what's going on I was just reinforcing my uh, my uh, distinction. There are games that cannot be learned; they must be taught. The and that's that's one of the things that that Gary Gygax even explained in the OD and D rules was just like, okay, so many people are playing this now. We're trying to set down and codify what we've been playing 
for years now for the first time in a way that you could at least try to explain it to somebody else. Yeah, that, that's what happened with, with me and Grognardia. Like my whole life I thought, well, there's just no way that this game can be played. It doesn't make any sense. And uh, you know, his, his testimony, like you, 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 can't, you can't avoid religious language in talking about the history of D&D for some reason. It's just very strange. But his testimony was that he was initiated by someone who either played with somebody from Wisconsin or, or else somebody who played with, with somebody who did. So it's, it's very much, it's very much a very strange thing. And when you look at back at how it evolved, uh, it's, the, it's the same thing as uh, people that get a real attached to the idea of the early church. And then they go back and study it out and they're like, oh wow, this Catholicism thing sure does emerge rather quickly, like quicker, quicker than we wanted it to. And you know the same thing happens with with AD and D. Everything that I think of as as being, uh, you know, classic AD and D rules. Oh, that's that's AD and D. That's not regular D and D. That's that's AD and D. That stuff came out as as, as part of the game so quickly. And uh, like, well, why did it happen? Like, why did you get those 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 giant hardbacks? You know, beyond the usual explanation of like, you know, Gygax is trying to take away from you know. Make something else, but get Arnison and out of the loop, right? Basically, you know. Well, you know, the real reason uh, was, of course, uh, had to do with the accretions to the game. You know, the freeform OD&D produced a lot of people making their own little hacks on top of it, and after for some of them, those hacks grew so cogent and so good that they were a threat to D&D's dominance. And the name of that game that describes that, that set of house rules that became that was the uh, RuneQuest. So, um, and meanwhile, meanwhile uh, back in uh, uh, Normie land, Normie, just people who want to play games land, uh, I want to circle back to the Complex of Games Apologist uh, complaint. And I'll tie this in to, uh, something that Alexander McChris has pointed out in his book, The Arbiter of World, which if you don't have this book, you need to go out and get a copy right now. It's a great book. Uh, you know, I, I, if I talk about D&D, you, know, you know, I'm not gonna break it down very logically and analytically. I'm gonna give you a religious experience that's gonna you know, <laughs> change your life, right? Uh, Al, you know, McChris is the exact opposite of that. He actually explains everything in like real plain English and it, and it actually makes sense. Um, I'm really jealous that he did that because I didn't think it could be done. Um, but uh, he argues in his book that the simple games crowd of which I am a part, give me, just give me a simple set of rules and I'll go fake it the rest of the way. That's how I like to run. You know, the more you add to a game, I, you know, it just it just weighs me down. It it, it, it vexes my spirit. I, I don't want to figure out what to do with it. So, you know, I'm not going to play Mega Traveler. I'm going to play Classic Traveler. I'm not going to play Traveler with the advanced uh, character generation. I'm going to go back and play the original basic character generation and so on. Well, McChris argues that if you're going to play a role-playing game, even a very simple one, that you're going to start making house rules very quickly in order to be consistent, in order to be fair to your players, those house rules are going to grow and grow. So no game, no real role-playing game that actually gets played, according to Alexander McChris, can stay small. And so, I, I don't know what to, I don't know what to say about that. That's like, 
that it's true in a way, but but it's also it's also very I don't know. I don't want to play I don't want to play GURPS with all the books at once. And I don't want to play even Axe, the Adventure Conqueror King system with all the stuff and play at once. And you know, you know, if I'm starting a campaign, I you know, I'm happy with just a little bit to go with and grow from there. So I, I think that's a healthy way to play. I, you, it's tough when you look at the big GURPS libraries and everything like that, where you say, "Wow, what what kind of a what, what do you want on your pizza?" I think I want I think I want a base D and D pizza with a, a dash of cyberpunk, and uh, maybe half the pizza has Oriental Adventures on it. Right? That's tough to do from the outset. It's but a, a, a more natural way to game is you got your buddies together and you say, "All right, we're going to play." Uh, we're going to play D&D this week and it, let the rules that you use grow on top of that. That's, that's, that's more natural. Yes. And, and there's your answer. Uh, there's your answer to the co complex games apologist. Why does the OSR build off of BX much more than AD&D? That's your reason. Cause it's easy. Um, yeah. Fewer, fewer assumptions baked in. Oh, I mean, but I grew up on second edition, which they had already begun stripping all the craziness out of it. They went back and added their own craziness in, but they, they were definitely on that path. Um, uh, there's a there's a path from AD and D to the current edition of of D and D, and it's become more of what it is now. This it's a it's a deliberate change based on playstyles and preferences. Uh, right. to, and, well, to to me, the biggest hurdle of writing and developing anything for AD and D is how much more granular XP calculation is. Like it's it's kind of nuts figuring out just because everything's based not only on what treasure there is, but the the actual HP of the monsters and characters that you're fighting. So that. That's something that you have to think about when writing and balancing. And the other thing is that the cosmology is so baked in. Yes. Let's talk about that. And uh, people have told me that I am completely crazy for saying that the that the cosmology can't be extricated from D&D &D and you can't play a D&D &D without the cosmology. And the reason that alignment doesn't make any sense is because everybody always throws out D&D's core cosmology. Right. Now, now we already know that uh, alignment comes from uh, both uh, Three Hearts and Three Lions by Paul Anderson and also by Mar Michael Moorcock's Elric stories. Um, and we know that uh, the alignments are not just uh, personal preferences or philosophies. They, they actually correspond to powers and principalities uh, that are beyond the material plane. Yeah, the, the way I sort of describe it is beings and persons' resonance frequencies. Everyone has sort of a resonance, even if it's extremely faint, with the frequencies of this or that plane. Like, it's sort of an attunement. Like, you're the crystal in a crystal radio, and you're picking up frequencies from, like, Asheron or the Nine Hells or whatever, and they're able to receive you if you've become a more powerful transmitter-receiver. Right, so so uh, putting this in memeology, broke would be uh, AD and D's alignment system is just garbage pop psychology masquerading as something cool. Uh, woke would be 
the nine alignments correspond to planar entities that are at war for the material plane. But the final level, the spoke, is going to be uh, from Mephrodus, what you see uh, on his Twitter account. Elite only, 17 alignments. This is for the chosen few. Anybody that can understand and play this, I, I am all ears. I would really like to know how that real D&D, real AD&D, how that gets turned into actual play sessions. And the, the one issue with that is it's sort of a metagaming thing because the characters aren't supposed to know that their alignment is resonating with this or that extra extra material plane you're supposed to you know reach a point where you find out because of your actions and within your alignment that you've attracted the interest and attention of those planes so you know going in is like a, a, a farmer who picks up his pitchfork and stabs an orc and decides to become an adventurer he's not going to know anything about the crazy cosmological charts and stuff that have like all the all the different planes and the prime material and the elemental quasi and demi planes he's not going to know that so it doesn't really make sense at first level to say ah yes i choose to be aligned with the fields of elysium but but they, they did put that cosmology in the player's book the, the image, the yeah. classic iconic image is right there in the AD&D player's guide. And it is cool. It, it is. Crazy. Well, and the, the thing is, though, is the player's guide is one of the first things that came out, though, after the monster manual. And the, and the monster manual was actually a Holmes book. But the player's guide is the first time you actually get a sense of what a and d is beyond old school D&D, OD&D, Holmes, the basic stuff. Right, and and your your temple of elemental evil, your your spider queen, all of those early modules are building on that, developing in that, and all of your AD and D supplements, you know, until you like crash into, you know, say I I, I, I presume, correct me if I'm wrong, but the Forgotten Realm stuff is a, sort of a step away from this, but like yeah, everything built on and developed this to the point where they could take uh, Jeff Grubbs. Uh, uh, congealment of all this massive amount, this, uh, all these accumulations, and synthesize them into his book, The Manual of the Planes, which is probably the most AD and D of of all AD and D books. It's like this is this is AD and D taken to its logical conclusion by somebody who believes you could actually make something coherent out of it. It is brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, uh, so the, the default campaign then for, for AD&D, this is how, how would you differentiate it from somebody that's going for the default campaign for uh, you know, basic D&D? Well, I, all D&D is going to start pretty well with the town and dungeon scenario. Uh, from there, you'll level up until you are capable of surviving the average wilderness encounter. Uh, from there, you will level up until you are name level and can set up a domain of your own in the wilderness. What comes after that? It's not the Mincer Masters or Immortal set. It is something to do with the planar cosmology. That's I, I'd say that's the ultimate end game for all AD&D games. Is something happening there? Possibly uh, the apotheosis of your characters into uh, the pantheons of some of those respective planes. Um, 
that that's what it's all about. Uh, and I think the AD&D modules give you a template of how to work that in as you go and seed that into your game from the earliest stages even. Uh, that that's incredible. I, I'm actually not familiar with the. I'm familiar with the cosmology, because in second edition they decided to see what it was like to adventure in those places, in the planescape setting. Uh, but I was just checking out this guy's tweet, which I posted in the chat, and and it's in the notes of the show. The the seventeen alignments thing. Uh, this is crazy. This is absolutely crazy. And. and and I, and I have to say, this is the greatest thing about AD&D is that you can, you can play it for years and, and time and again come back to something that Gygax wrote in the Dungeon Master's Guide and see something there that is an integral part of the game that you didn't, never understood before, but which you suddenly see what it really is and you become enlightened. Um, this is uh, this is not just. I would I would go so far as to say this is not just a chosen few game. This is not just elite only. This is a a game for the elect of gaming. It really is. <laughs> uh, I want to I wanted to quote something that sort of reinforces or repeats what you were you said earlier. Uh, the in this thread, Mephrodis says uh, in the AD and D game, alignment is more akin in a certain sense to the play platonic idea of the forms rather than the dualistic eternal struggle between law and chaos as it is in Anderson Moorcock and the non-advanced uh, TSR versions. I mean, I don't know what, what more to say about that, but that was, that's why the revelation about uh, Paul Anderson's uh, law and chaos uh, dichotomy, I guess that was a revelation to me because I, I grew up on AD&D, and I took it for granted that it was just, well, lawful good is, is sort of this set of behavior, and then this, these philosophies, and you can see how this, uh, this outer plane represents the ideal of those, uh, of that philosophy, of that, that, um, that way of being, that that plane is, is the, 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 platonic, the, the platonic ideal is just the best way to put it. Right, which, which is why that in your monster manual, it's not enough merely to have devils. You also need demons as a distinct class of entity, as well as something else called a daemon. So, um, across every every single alignment has its own range of monsters and deities. And, and, and they try to make the the monsters and deities follow from that that ideal it's it's you know you kind of know what you're going to get from a chaotic evil planar entity a demon you know what you're going to get out of a demon or a burb or you're you never know what you're going to get out of the demon that's the point of being chaotic evil and uh and the other thing is the way spells and magic items work with alignment uh, it's sort of in it doesn't make sense to have alignment languages anymore when, when you've adopted that system, but the idea that you would have a sword that reacts to a lawful good person and and it would it would be able to it would harm beings that are chaotic evil. Sort of you can you can imagine in your mind's eye those energies from that from that way of being, you know, the the they the way they 
cancel each other out. You can you can imagine those energies uh, using the sword as a conduit, fighting each other. It's sort of a, a material representation of this metaphysical struggle. And, uh, and there's, there's one more piece uh, on that I'd, I'd like to bring out. Uh, and you know, when, when fourth edition GURPS came out, they uh, integrated GURPS Infinite Worlds into it as its default campaign setting. It was a new step for them to uh, have an explicit default campaign rather than an implied one. Um, uh, you know, the idea of GURPS that you could play anything you want was certainly a compelling thing at the time that they were pushing GURPS 4th edition, which was uh, actually, I think of that as yesterday, but that was really a long time ago now. Uh, you know, it was, what, 10 or 15 years ago. Um, but, you know, like as John C. Wright has pointed out, uh, you know, AD&D was always a play anything game from the beginning. And uh, if you look uh, on that awesome chart on page 121 with the planes broken down uh, in the player's handbook for AD&D, you'll see that in the middle there, that prime material plane is actually a multiverse. So, um, this is I, I, this is not just necessarily uh, like sort of a, a DC Comics uh, Earth Two, Earth Three, Earth C kind of a multiverse. I believe that's a, like a, a Zelaznian Amberverse that is right there at the heart of the game. So that literally anything you can imagine and anything you want is all right there, and the planes just build from there. So. Um... Let me, uh, I want to jump topics. Because um, you've talked about the outer planes, you've talked about alignment and how that all plays into first edition AD&D. I want to talk about post-apocalyptic AD&D. Um, and why is it that AD&D is a post-apocalyptic game? Ooh. Why uh, uh, Why I've seen people assert that. Now, I, I have some reasons, but I want to hear you guys uh describe this because i already know what i think but i want to hear you well, guys talk about what you think well i kind of want to use that uh, to to talk about how vancy and magic works in ad and d versus D D. because everybody always thinks that vancy and magic is just the oh fire and forget and you can only have so many spells in your spell slot that's what vancy and magic means no vancy and magic is where you have a system of magic that was highly, highly categorized, specified down to a science where there was all this understanding about how it worked, how it interwove with the universe, and then all of that knowledge, bam, it was lost. And the people who are using it today are the ones who've dug it up. You don't understand it. You're trying to learn it. You're going to screw it up. It's crazy. And one of the big differences between OD&D and AD&D, and this is something that a lot of people like hand wave just because they don't realize that they make assumptions about it. It's not the same at all. Oh. In OD&D, 
your first level magic user has his big book of first level spells. It has every first level spell in it. He starts out with this book. If he loses this book, he can replace it for 2,000 gold. That means that there is a magic spellbook emporium that the wizard can walk down to with his 2,000 gold and buy a new spellbook. The limitations on knowing spells in OD&D is just based on the magic user's intelligence. As soon as he hits a level where he can know those spells he rolls his percentage based on the intelligence table and then he either is able to read and understand that spell in his book or he does not and as soon as he is able to cast second level spells he goes down to the magic spellbook emporium and he pays four thousand gold and buys a spook of all the second level spells in advanced dungeons and dragons that's not how it works at all you have your starting spells but you gain new spells by finding them you find spells in scrolls you use read magic to interpret the scrolls and you inscribe them in your spell book you are searching for new magic because you can't go down to the magic spellbook emporium and buy a book of all the first level spells you have to find the first level spells you have to find someone who knows the first level spells you have to either convince him to teach you the first level spell or you have to kill him and steal his book that has his first level spells that is a huge huge difference in the implied setting between od and and bx and advanced dungeons and dragons Absolutely. Uh, yeah, uh, BX is a little like that, isn't it? Uh, the in, BX, in BX, you BX have is a little spell. weird. BX is a little weird because they stripped out the the roll to no spell. In BX, it's kind of weird because you only know your one spell. You don't have other spells in your book. Your book is that one spell, and that makes read magic even crazier because if you do not take read magic as one of your spells your magic user has no access to any scrolls you find whatsoever at all ever unless they are scrolls that you yourself scribe wow um i don't like that i don't like the system you described about the scrolls and, and books and everything it doesn't really it makes for a fine game um, but it doesn't really make sense in the world if spells can be scribed onto scrolls and spell books and things like that. It's not going to be long before that knowledge spreads out. It, a, a world in which magic that can be written down into a book or a scroll is rare doesn't really uh, doesn't really make sense. It doesn't pass the smell test when well, that, we know that's because happens. everybody starts writing these settings where everybody and their mom is a wizard writing down spells. Yeah, uh, it may be a great introduction to to a game, but uh, it, it's not going to take too many game sessions for you to, you know, to, to develop a, a world where the spellcraft is common. Yeah, it's sort of strange that every game starts at that. How apocalyptic it, is is the setting then? Default setting is pretty pretty way more default than what most people who play D and D want to go with. Um. Let me read to you a quote from someone online. I I also used to hang out on the RPG site before um, I got involved in this massive internet imbroglio, uh, and that took me away from it. Um, one person is talking about, and I started a thread about this very subject, uh, and they got some good, really good responses. 
So the person says this. He's using the AD&D system to populate a 10 by 10 area about the size of Ohio, okay? So a, in a space the size of Ohio, he got 10 locations. Two were castles held by monsters or bandits, evil NPCs. One was a ruined keep, and the remaining seven were two large cities, three towns, and a pair of little spots with a house or farm. So in a space the size of Ohio, you had two large cities, which I believe in AD&D terms is what, 30,000 people? Yeah. Uh, three towns and a couple of farms. Yeah, which is which is sort sort of goes to the point. The the densely populated world where you have thousands of wizards running around. Yeah, uh, that's but that's that's not a D and D. That is not a D and D at all. People think it is. People run their games that way. They write their campaigns that way. But the reason that the whole post-apocalyptic dead earth lost forgotten secret magic thing doesn't work and, and doesn't make sense to door and all is because people aren't building their way their worlds the way that ad and d's rule set expects you to build and populate your worlds and the people who are designing D D now don't understand how how to build and populate the worlds in such a way that makes sense with ad and d system so, so this is the question I wanted to ask. One of the other rules that plays into this post-apocalyptic thing is the fact that you can't make magic items uh, very easily, and some of them you can't make at all. I mean, in order to create a magic item, and you'll have to forgive me, it's been a very long time since I've looked at the rules, you have to cast permanence, and each time you cast permanent, it reduces your constitution by a point, right? Well, it, some items require permanence. Other items just require XP costs. But if you think about how how much it takes to to earn that XP, that that's a huge cost in terms of life and risk and and resources to create something that is not not even necessarily lasting, like healing potions cost XP to make, if I recall. And healing potions were not some alchemical concoction that, you know, you could brew up in your laboratory. No, it, it was a liquid suspension of a magic spell. So, all of these things go together to create a world that's vastly depopulated where much magical knowledge has been lost and um that implies that there was some kind of devastation that happens are there any other rules that play into this assumption you want to field this one jeffro oh well uh i don't i, don't, I have an oblique answer to that um uh, but like right in the right in the preface, uh, now we're, we're talking about uh, we're talking about all these odd uh, things that are baked into the AD and D rules. Uh, I want to argue that that they are not they're not arbitrary. They were created intentionally with a specific goal in mind, 
this is this is what's going to sound astonishing is is when you take them all together um the idea was to counter the wild and woolly free form anything goes aspect of OD&D where TSR was not going to do any more of your imagining for you than, than absolutely necessary to a new one where the goal was to have things organized in such a way that each each player could go take his character into different campaigns without really missing a beat. So when you play AD&D and ignore the central tenets of the default campaign, you're ruining that for everyone. And I want you to feel bad about that. <laughs> and you know, I, there, there's, there's the, the whole, you don't dump on people who are having fun and you know, not, not to dump on people who are having fun, but you see so many people who are like, Oh, we like this, but this, this or that just doesn't work. And I don't understand why it's not working. Well, it's not working for a reason. And the reason it's not working is you're doing it wrong. <laughs> so let me ask a question. I mean, is there ever an answer as to what this apocalypse was that caused uh, humanity to be wiped out or whatever? It's a spaghetti incident. You don't want to explain it. Like, well, you know, Jack Vance never explains uh, his far future timeline. Yeah, you, you never know why the dying Earth is dying other than, you know, it's really far in the future. You never know what caused the guy in Reach to fall. Yeah, and, and, that, and that's okay, you know, because... Because uh, it, it doesn't really matter to the everyday lives of the people who are there. Uh, and, you know, having a little magic or a little mystery underneath everything is great. And certainly it's a plague on RPGs to have everything over-explained, uh, just as you see in uh, TV series and movies where they have to just go back and prequel, 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 prequel everything. Um, so no, D&D was a forward-thinking game. And on, on top of that, it's, it's an opportunity for the game master who likes to write his own worlds to provide the backstory that they want. Yeah, if if your campaign needs an explanation for why you're in post-apocalyptia, yeah, you're going to need to come up with that explanation. And, and, and also, I, if, if you take the, the design of, of your dungeons or these pockets of ruins left over from that ancient civilization that contain these wondrous treasures and spells, then you might want to tailor those dungeons to the backstory that you have in mind. You might have uh, you know, a fallen scientifically advanced civilization because you think it would be really cool for your players to discover a laser beam you know, deep in one of the dungeons. Yeah, and and uh, it, it lets you set the flavor of the world, uh, but, but the rules are the same. Dwemermount absolutely does all of that uh, from uh, Autark Games. It's, it's a worked example of how if you took some of the core assumptions of, of, of AD and specifically the mega dungeons that were assumed to be what you would playing in and around, even though no, none of those had been published in the seventies, you know, um, it, it very much applies uh, many parts of what we're discussing here into the actual adventures and dungeon levels. Now, what's interesting about AD and D is it isn't the mad, mad, 
Hello. We lost. Oh, no. No, no, we lost. We lost Warpig. Warpig's mic cut out for a second. Must be a must be a network hiccup. It's not me for once. Uh, my uh, my network disconnected earlier in the show. Well, while we wait for him uh, for his mic to get fixed, I have a question for you guys, and and the, I'll put on my my cynic hat, and and my my fun loving fifth edition playing hat. Uh, ta talking about ta talking about the cosmology and understanding what it's about and, and how it impacts the game world. Uh, from a player's perspective, who cares? Oh, I... Who cares why my paladin is level good? Who, who cares why my thief I, is I, chaotic good? I, I can answer right? this. I, 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 uh, I, think you, I think the old games um, are worth the effort, and they prove themselves time and time again. Whatever you, as a Generation Xer or a Generation Yer or a Millennial, whatever you think when you sit down and you look at these games, you need to understand uh, that they are the result of countless of hours of, of playing by people who thought this was was more fun than anything else you could possibly do. And um, uh, when you when you see this weirdness. Uh, it, like for instance, in Traveler, Traveler's original classic rules produces things that just flat out don't make any sense at all. Uh, when you when you look at it from say a hard science fiction standpoint, but when you just sit down and say, okay, let let's go with it. Let's just see where this goes. Uh, these strange things become engines of creativity that you will uh, look back and you'll interpolate. Uh, the, 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 the cognitive dissonance uh, that they produce in things that are way more interesting than what you have come up to, to begin with. And um, yeah, I, I think, I think it's, it's worth it to just trust it and then see where it leads. Uh, in my most recent uh, game session uh, with D&D, &D, uh, you know, I, I experimented with just, just placing uh, pulp stories that have nothing to do with each other uh, nearby, with with no regard to uh, keeping things cogent, and what happens is is uh, it works anyway, and the players understand it. You know, they'll they'll see a, a they'll hear a snatch from an old Lovecraft story that nobody's familiar with, and they'll be like, you know, well, we don't want to mess with that. That doesn't sound good, you know, and and things start to grow out of all these things that are thrown together kitchen sink style. Uh, in spite of in spite of how crazy it seems and how inconsistent it seems, it doesn't matter that it can't work. It works anyway, and it and it works great at the table. It frees you up to do anything uh, in response to what is happening at the table, and uh, just go. You're no longer weighed down by having to be faithful to somebody else's idea of what makes sense. And so, I I, I see it as just this great engine. Uh, of endless, endless creativity. Well, I, I tend to agree overall. I, I dr now that I've discovered that play style, I do prefer a play style or a game in which you, you, you allow certain things to just happen by the roll of the dice or, or tables or charts or what have you and sort of see what emerges from that game. Um, I think having having an, a fun story or a good time emerge from the game is much more satisfying than 
playing out a, a story. But do I really need to know the cosmology of the game to enjoy it? Does it matter? Uh, or as as a player, as a, as a game master, I it might help you design. Um, well, if you're going to play AD and D, it will absolutely help you play AD and D. If you are, um, if you don't, if you look at AD and D and say all of this is stupid, it makes no sense. I'm not even going to try. I'm you know I'm going to do what's obviously right here. All right. I mean everybody's everybody's done it, um, but uh, you know where you go with that is not necessarily going to be particularly cool. Um, uh, you know, if, if you explore what the game gave you rather than what you think it ought to have been in the first place, um, you know, that's, that's just a, that's a, that's a huge personal choice that has a gigantic impact on what happens at the table. Uh, people who do the one, the, the, the loosey goosey types are more likely to say that system doesn't matter. Um, you know, uh, people like me, I would be like, you know, uh, once I figure out how to check for morale in AD&D, um, uh, beyond that, it's like, how do you even know you're playing a game if you don't accept something at face value and try to make it work? Uh, so, uh, I think, uh, I, I mean, I, I, mean, I don't completely disagree because I, I think when you when you strip all that stuff, you end up with Forgotten Realms. You oh, just oh no. That's clearly not a good place to end up. Right. It's it's bland. It's 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 oatmeal fantasy. And that's clearly a place where uh, you've repudiated the uh, apocalyptic side of AD and D as well. And and it's really it's really lame, you know. Oh, it is. Yeah. When when you know the 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 point of the Forgotten Realms is the society it's it's sort of like playing a modern game right it is a modern game it, in the medieval sense right like that's you've got big cities millions of people your your adventures often involve intrigue amongst existing factions that sort of thing that can be a perfectly pleasurable experience you can you can have a good game out of that but it's not uh, it, it's it doesn't have the same sort of feel as a traditional D and D game. I, and I see no reason to inject contemporary modern day Seattle into my fantasy world. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it, yeah, it's, it's a shame modern day Seattle owns the hobby right now. I, I will say this: I've been playing uh, Fifth Edition with in the Curse of Strahd module. I don't think it's a good module. I wouldn't recommend it to anybody. Uh, but uh, if you go into it knowing that you're playing 5th edition and you like uh, what that offers, which is a great fantasy-themed superhero game, uh, you can have a lot of fun with it, but the setting isn't as deep. The character, uh, all the character abilities are really cool powers that you can describe, oh, you know, I've got this really cool druid. She shapeshifts into bear. And so you talk about your character and just all the cool stuff they can do uh, without talking about who they are and how they fit into the into the world, which is, I don't know. In, in older editions of D&D, when, when what your character could personally do was little less important than what they did do, that, that, I, that I think is what makes it uh, a more interesting game.
or, or that explains part of partly explains its longevity. Um, uh, yeah, I think we're just about out of time, or we've been on for an hour. We could probably talk about this stuff all day, but I think, uh, is there anything else you want to say on, on the topic for today? Uh, Jeff Rowe first. I just, I just wish we had Daddy Warpig back. I'm just lost without his guidance in this time. Uh, aren't I here? I'm here, right? You just made it back. Thank you. <laughs> hey. I, I, was, I was ready to, I was about to scramble and, and try and remember what your what your closing script was. <laughs> I was on the point of a, or I was in the midst of making a good point though. Did Jeffro finish off what I was saying? Probably not. Uh, we didn't, we didn't really get enough of it before you dropped off. Why don't you go ahead and, and we'll, we'll finish with your, uh, with the discussion on your, your thoughts. We were just talking about AD and D and how it was post-apocalyptic, right? And I was pointing out that the, um, particular kind of post-apocalyptic uh, setting that AD&D is, is not Mad Max where it's dropping down into barbarism, nor is it that trough at the bottom of barbarism that you so often see, but it is that place where you're just coming out of barbarism, where civilization is starting to return, and that is why you have a domain play in the game. That's why you have heroes, when they reach a certain level, they set up uh, castles and keeps and a wizard tower, and they have followers flock to them because they're going out, they're clearing out uh, you know, the wilderness, they are establishing safe areas, people are flocking to them so because they can live there, they can be safe, they're restoring civilization to the monster-infested wilderness. I mean, you're a commoner. You're living in the midst of fabulous keeps and castles of kingdoms of old that have been wiped out, Monsters are everywhere, humanoids are everywhere, and there isn't much you can do about being safe. And then all of a sudden, this high-level person comes and is doing great things to drive back the darkness, drive back the monsters. Of course you're going to flaunt to them. So the very specific part of post-apocalyptia that AD&D represents is a rebirth of civilization to take those very few places in that 10 by 10 map that's the size of Ohio that has just a couple of cities and you're founding new cities, you're founding new places for people to uh, live in and to thrive. Um, and so it is not wallowing in misery post-apocalyptia, it is birth of uh, civilization, birth of hope, birth of order, and that gives an entire different uh, twist, an entire different filter on all those things that are going on. And that is that, that premise is gaming gold. Uh, it is, however, not a great premise if you want to sell a lot of books. And uh, yeah, I, I'm going to say... This frame on what D&D is will solve so many gaming problems, uh, but it does not produce the Forgotten Realms at all. And yes, absolutely. This, this, is, this is the most important part of the implied campaign of AD&D, bar none.
I um, I know we're we're pretty much done and out of time. I'd rather hoped we'd gotten a chance to talk a little bit more about um, psionics and what they imply for the setting, um, or or gone a little bit further into the darkness around these things. Um, well, if 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 any of you guys have to have to go, we'll call it. Otherwise, we can we can get jump into that. What do you say? I I would I would ask all the people who uh, have had twenty year, thirty year long ADD one E campaigns what their opinion is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. I'm concerned. Psionics is definitely elite only chosen few rules. I I've never understood. Yeah, that, that's that's out of my wheelhouse. <laughs> so um do uh do either of you have anything to say before we kick off uh, thanks for getting this back together this has been a real real good yeah, time. This, this is awesome this is like we've known each other online for years now but this is literally the first time jeffro and i have actually talked together you know on in a hangout or anything so that's awesome <laughs> happy to be here oh, that's, that's great we'll have to do it again then any last words, Dorno? Uh, I'd just like to say thanks so much for you guys coming on talking about one of my favorite things. And uh, thanks to our listeners hanging out in the chat. I've been talking with a few of you here. Uh, there's a couple of really good comments, but uh, why don't you come back and read them in, in uh, YouTube? Really great stuff. Uh, so thank you guys for attending. Thank you for, for listening. And thanks to all of our listeners online later. It's been a lot of fun for me. All right, uh, this has been Geek Gab for Saturday, July 27th, 2019. Uh, reminder, you can get us on youtube.com slash geekgab, youtube.com slash geekgab. Go ahead and subscribe, hit the bell so you can get some, uh, so you can get uh, announcements as to when we're going live and stuff. Uh, I've also heard that if you like one of our shows, if you do like it, go ahead and click like. That is apparently YouTube doesn't really actually send out uh, announcements sometimes. So if you want to get announcements, just click like on a video and uh, they'll be more likely to, to send out announcements. I, that is not a, a plea for likes. That's just the way YouTube is doing things nowadays, whatever. Um, you can also catch us on the Google Play Store, on the Apple iTunes Store, and on SoundCloud.com. Uh, so you can listen to us on the device of your choice. Just do a search for Geek Gab, and we're available in all those places. Folks, we are leaving you for today, but don't you worry. Don't you fret. We will be back.